Well, Mike mentioned we're starting a new series, um, and we're going to look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, and uh, we're calling it Big Picture Perspective. And um, I want to start with a story. A guy named Gary Thomas wrote a book called the, the Beautiful Fight, and in that book he talks about a businessman who was in the service industry and for many years was at the front desk, and he caught a lot of the brunt of people's disgruntlement um, because he was at the front desk because of their lack of service that they got or whatever. And he says he got tired of getting sprayed with angry spittle from dissatisfied customers who expected five-star service at a Motel 6 price. (laughs) And one day he says, I I became kind of oddly detached because this lady was going on a rant and I had been there so many times I was used to this, and I saw this lady going on this rant. And he says, I just kind of had an outer body experience as I watched her. I felt as if I was watching a movie, he said. And in fact, I couldn't help but think that the angry woman's antics made her look like a monkey as I was watching her go on and on about this. And that observation, after years of watching people go on these tirades, and none of this was his fault. He just happened to be the guy at the front desk who got to hear about their bad experience or whatever. And he said, so finally, I had this idea. He posted this huge mirror behind the front desk, and all the tirades stopped. Now, some of y'all are laughing, and some of you are going, oh, well, because we know what happened. When you see yourself acting like that, it's not a pretty picture, is it? It gives you a completely different perspective when you see yourself angry and yelling, and then you're kind of going, wow, do I really look like that? Yeah, you really do look like that. And it changed things. And I thought about that. And we've had, probably all of us in our lives have had uh, an experience where our perspective changed when we saw maybe our our behavior. So I had this happen to me. um, When I was in college, I was an intern at this church. And I was going to Atlanta Christian College. It's Point University now. But um, one of the jobs I had was running a church league basketball league. I had to run the league. So I had to open up the gym. I had to uh, get the um, uh, referees for the games. I had to get the teams in the league, and I kept the book during the games, you know, keep the score. And so as a result, I got to know the referees pretty well because I I had to get them. I had to pay them each week, and uh, they actually have hearts, and they actually have feelings. Referees do, you know. And um, I got to know these guys, and I, and I, I had to pay them, and I saw what I was paying them or what we were paying. I was like, man, I would not do what they do for that amount of money. And I was like, they're just trying to make some extra money. And then, you know, you have church league guys who, uh, you know, think they're really good basketball players. And uh, some of the a- actions that I saw kind of surprised me. And, but what it did was it made me say, that's me. As I'm watching some of this behavior, I go, do I act like that? Do I treat the referees like that? I probably do. But it completely changed my perspective about referees, about sports, about how I acted on the court. When I saw some of these people, I'm like, that is so embarrassing, you know? And and the referees would have this joke. They would say, if any of these guys were any good, they wouldn't be in church league basketball. Like, yeah, well, that's, that's true. That's true. But it did give me a very different perspective that really helped me uh, think about sports and the value of that, and, and, and it it's doesn't supersede people's feelings. It's not more important. The game itself is not more important than somebody's feelings or or even people on, on, on each other's teams that I saw some of that as well. So probably all of us have had times in our life where we've had something happen in our lives where we had 
a perspective change. We probably have had a few times in our life where we were convinced about something, but an event in our lives or something in somebody else's life that we watched unfold in front of us or at least in our experience, and we go, yeah, I think about that way different now after that experience, and my perspective has changed. And maybe it's sometimes just your age, the season of your life. You look at things very differently. And I think about that every time I have conversations with my kids. I try to go, you just don't understand, you know. And they're like, uh, you don't understand. And you're thinking, yeah, because I was there at that age at one time. And now I'm in this position and I have a different view of that. I have a different perspective now. And I'm trying to let you know about that perspective. And that different perspective sometimes helps us uh, understand not only that there are other ways of looking at things, but also that we have very, very different experiences in our lives, don't we? Everybody does, and we have to think about that when we're talking to people, when we're interacting with people, and think about those perspectives. And obviously, 2020 changed a lot of our perspectives about a lot of things. Am I right? I mean, our health, um, the invisible viruses that are in the air that we don't necessarily see, but now we know are really out there, and we can ingest those, and it can wreak havoc. And obviously, we had this pandemic, and man, it changes all of our perspectives now, um, about do I, get the, do I get the vaccine or do I not get it? All of these things changed. And then obviously, politically and socially, there were a lot of things going on in 2020, still continue to go on that change our perspectives about things. Now maybe so I didn't change my perspective. I still think the way I did. But you realize there's a lot of people that have a different perspective out there, right? About some of these issues and how do we get people to hear and see our perspective when we know there's a lot of different ones out there. And how do we let that change us? How did 2020 change your perspective in a big picture way about life, about your spirituality? Did it change us enough to see the big picture of life and what God really wants for me in this life? I've heard so many people, and probably you as well, have said, you know what, it really made me think about things differently. I look at life, I look at work, I look at family very differently now after what happened last year. And that can be a good thing. Well, in the New Testament, we read about a Pharisee, a keeper of the law at the highest level, and his name was Saul, and he had a certain perspective on life. And as a Jew who was raised as a Roman citizen, and he was educated at a very, very high level by the top educated Pharisees that there were at the time, he became obsessed with knowing about and keeping the Jewish law. And his whole perspective was about this law. Everything he did and his perspective of everybody else is are they obeying that law? Do they realize what they're doing? If they're not, then he came to this uh, understanding that anyone did not share his perspective about the law was considered an enemy who needed to be either punished or eliminated. That's how passionate he was about this law that he made his whole life. But Saul's perspective was miraculously changed. And as I said this last um, uh, service, I said, as many of y'all know, and I go, I shouldn't say that because I can't take for granted that some of y'all maybe have not read the, the book of Acts. And in the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are about the life of Jesus. And then right after that, there's this great book, Acts, which talks about the Acts of the Apostles, when right after Jesus had died and risen again and spent 40 days on the earth uh, appearing to his disciples and others and then saying, I'm leaving, here's the great commission to go into all the world. 
And then he left and the church began in Acts. And Acts lets us know how the church began in that first century. It started unfolding in all these crazy, amazing stories. So I challenge you to read that. But we know from that, I'm kind of um, just kind of giving you a quick view of that. But, but Saul's perspective miraculously changed one day when he was literally on his way to arrest some people who he believed had the wrong perspective about God and his law and he was going to arrest them and God struck him with this bright light brought him to his knees and basically he heard this voice from heaven saying Saul Saul why do you persecute me and he can't see anything but this amazingly bright light and goes who are you Lord and he says I'm Jesus who you're persecuting He knew about Jesus in some form, but now he heard from Jesus' voice that his life was about to change. His perspective was about to change. And that experience completely changed Saul's perspective forever. No longer was he committed to punishing or eliminating those with different perspectives, but he was presented with a much bigger perspective of the way life should really be. And not only would Saul's perspective change, but we also know that his change, his name changed from Saul to Paul. And we see this a lot in the Bible. People not only have a life change, but they have a name change to remind them of that life change. I'm not that old person anymore. I am a new person. And he spent the rest of his life sharing the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere he went. Instead of trying to keep it in this club of of elite people that knew the law. Now it's like, no, no, it's for everybody. And that's what God sent him to do. And because of that perspective change, we have all these letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote the majority of them, and it has changed the world through those letters. Because we not only have Acts, which tells us about the missionary journeys to start those churches all over the world, but all those letters in the New Testament are Paul's letters back to those churches he started saying, how are you guys doing? I heard about this. And he's trying to encourage them and challenge them and help them to be who God's called them to be. And if we truly read those letters with the right perspective, they can change us too. And so we're going to look at Philippians. So in the next few weeks, we're going to look at that particular letter to that church in that first century. It was a place called of Philippi, and there is a theme in that letter of joy, and you'll understand that as we go through that. And Paul is reminding his readers and us that regardless of his circumstances, because he's literally chained, he's in prison. We don't know exactly was it was a dark dungeon prison or was it a house prison that he, but literally he has a guard with him at all times that he's chained to, and he can't just go where he wants to. He can have people there, but he can't just go and and do whatever he pleases. So he says, I'm in prison, but I want you to have this perspective. Regardless of my circumstances, as I'm writing to you, regardless of your circumstances, wherever you are, we need to understand this big picture perspective of God's love in Jesus Christ, regardless of our circumstance. And that's where true joy comes from. So this letter was written again as Paul was imprisoned in Rome. He's awaiting trial because something has happened to him, and he keeps appealing up the food chain all the way to Caesar, and he's awaiting to get a view or or a, a hearing with Caesar. And as we read this, Paul has this great affection for these people, which is amazing when you think about Paul's first encounters in Philippi in this region that was called Macedonia. And we read about this in Acts 
chapter 16. And we're going to have a little bit of that up on the screen in just a minute. And Paul is with a guy named Silas. He's going on this missionary journey with him. Also, Timothy, who is a young preacher that's learning from Paul. And also, Luke, who is the author of Acts, who's writing down all this that happens during these missionary journeys so that we can know about it. And this was very instrumental because when we read those letters of Paul... Then we go back and go, well, wait a minute, when did this happen? And then you go back to Acts and you go, oh, that's right, they were on this missionary journey. And it all helps tie us together with connecting the dots of who was where, why they were there, and how these churches were formed. So we're going to look at um, Acts chapter 16. I'm going to paraphrase some of this in the middle, but right there, thank you all for having that up. This is what Luke writes about this. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now, this is his first encounter in this city. And there was not a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, and that's where Paul used to go first whenever he went into a town, but there wasn't one that we can understand from from history in Philippi yet because there wasn't enough Jewish, specifically men, to start one. But there was these women who were believers in God who were meeting, and Paul goes and meets with them. And as you see, as a result, this lady named um, Lydia is brought to know the Lord, and now she's inviting them into her home. And obviously, we know from some background that she dealt in purple cloth, which was very expensive, and she was a wealthy lady, and now she's open in her home. And we believe in Philippi, this became a house church because of her generosity. And so it was kind of a, a cool thing. Now, again, Paul, a few years ago, wouldn't have even associated himself with any of these people at all, whether they were women or Gentiles, but now he's looking for those people to tell them about the gospel of Christ. So then, I'm going to paraphrase what kind of happened in the middle. They had an experience in this town shortly after this where there was a slave girl who could predict the future. And some people had enslaved her and knew that she has this ability to predict the future. And they were making a lot of money off of her. She was a fortune teller, but she was a slave. So she would give people their fortunes and they would profit from this. Well, Paul noticed that this girl kept following them around and she would be shouting at the top of her lungs, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved over and over again. And this bothered Paul so much. Not that it wasn't true what she was saying, but it was just constant yelling this. And so one day he turned around and he finally said, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And he drove this spirit out of her. Well, what do you think the slave owners thought about this? They were not happy because their source of income was no longer there. And so it caused this uproar, and they dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace to face the authorities, and there's all this uproar going on. They were beaten, and they were put into prison where they stayed overnight, and their feet were fastened in the stocks. And the other prisoners, as Luke tells us, they hear them during the night as they have been beaten and they're fastened in the stocks, they're praying, and they're singing hymns. And the other prisoners going, yeah, they're just not getting through to these guys. <laughs> they just don't get it. And they go, no, they get it. They have a big picture perspective that's much greater. And this was obviously something that the other prisoners going, what is it that they have that we don't quite understand? So then we're going to go to uh, verse 29. 
And what we, this is actually from Acts again. And the jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. There was this earthquake where all of a sudden everybody's chains come undone. And uh, he comes and he brought them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they reply, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately... He and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy. And I'm emphasizing joy because this is the letter of Philippians. That's the theme, joy. And in Acts, as it's getting started, this church, this man was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. That brought joy that now I believe in God. He could technically be executed for letting the prisoners go, but they all stayed and led him to the Lord. And if you think about that, that's an amazing thing. So this is how things started in the Philippian church. And by seeing perspective change and lives change and people being filled with joy when they learned that they have a creator that loves them, they have a savior that died for them and wants what's best for them, Paul experienced this uh, immense joy. His perspective was different now. I'm not trying to be exclusive with religion. I'm trying to be inclusive with the relationship with God. And that's what he's doing. So we're going to look at the opening of this letter and see what Paul says. Now, years later, he's in prison and he's writing back to this church, which is established, as you'll see. And he's trying to encourage them and equip them and challenge them in their lives and also to understand that even though what I'm going through, don't lose hope. Don't forget that big picture perspective. So let's read chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Timothy's name's probably in there because he may have dictated, wrote this for Paul himself, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. And again, there's overseers, which are elders and deacons, and this is already an established church. They have been established here. This church is up and running. Are they still meeting in Lydia's house? I don't know, but it seems like maybe so. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving. Uh, and then he says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how, long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, when you hear that first introduction to those people, do you think Paul has an affection for these people? Obviously, he really loves these people. These are people that he knows. He's been through some difficult times with them. And he has a deep love for these folks. He's visited them. And he even got, ended up getting beat up and thrown into prison because of his passion to tell them the good news of Christ. Now, if it were me, I would be like, I'm never going back there again. <laughs> Those people hate me. They're crazy. I'll get thrown in prison again. But that didn't stop Paul from having this passion for these people. 
He had a bigger picture perspective. And what we don't necessarily realize in this letter is that most of the people in Philippi were not Jewish. They were not of his descent. And you know where Paul was many years before, that only the Jews have this, should have this relationship with God. Everybody else is not good enough. But now he realizes these are not necessarily Jewish. There was probably a few Jewish people in this crowd, but most of them were not. And years before, the old Paul, the old Saul, would have not even associated with these people. But now he has this love for them. And his perspective had dramatically changed. And now Paul's priority is the very people that he used to shun or avoid. They were more than just acquaintances. They were, as you probably caught that, they were partners in the gospel. And that's important for us to understand today because as a church body, we are partners in the gospel. It's not something we just come and hear on Sunday morning. We hear the gospel and go, oh, that was great, and we go out and just live however. No, we are partners together. As we leave this place, we are partnering together to shed the light of the gospel wherever we are, whether you're a teacher whether you're in the service industry, whether um, you're in the medical field, whatever you do, people should see something about your life that your perspective has some kind of a deep sense of joy about it, even in the midst of maybe difficult circumstances. We are partners in that. And Paul is saying, you are partners with me in the gospel, the good news. We have to be partners in that. And so I want us to look um, at um, a little bit this last uh, paragraph, if I will. It's actually the last sentence. And Paul has a lot of run-on sentences. If you're, a, if you're a teacher, English teacher specifically, you're probably going, man, this guy runs on a lot of teachers, okay? But Paul was so excited, he couldn't stop for a period. You know, he's like, I just got to tell you about how great Jesus is and, and all this stuff. And, and Timothy's probably writing this down for him. He goes, you need, Paul, you need, you need a period. Paul, you need a period. Okay, just keep going. Just keep writing, Timothy. Just keep writing. So this is a long sentence, but listen. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now notice what Paul doesn't say or doesn't pray for them. He doesn't pray, I hope that you have a lot of wealth. I hope that you have a lot of success. I hope that you have a lot of fame or popularity or power. He doesn't pray for that. He's not a health and wealth preacher, is he? He's a preacher of the reality of the world. That when you follow Jesus, some of that stuff will, good things will happen, but not necessarily. But you're to be faithful anyway. You have to have a different perspective. So he says, first of all, that they will abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Knowledge and depth of insight. Don't you wish you had more of that? I do. The older I get, I, get a, I hope I get a little more of that. I have a, a hopefully a better godly big picture perspective than I did when I was younger. And so he's saying, I want you, I pray that you will have more knowledge in the depth of insight. And they needed to have depth and insight just like we do in our culture because the culture is telling us a very different message than the gospel message, aren't they? People are valuable because, according to culture, if you're beautiful and you can make money and you have success and you get a lot of um, views on whatever it is you're doing at the time, then you're success. No, the gospel message says you're valuable because you're a child of God. And he's made you for a reason and a purpose. And then he says you will be able to discern what is best. When you have that knowledge and depth of insight, you will be able to discern what is best, and that's what we want. What is best? What's the best thing for me to do in this situation? Now, I know we can get caught up in what's the best thing to do and never do anything. You ever have those moments where you just oh, you overthink it? And I get that, but 
Ultimately, Paul is specifically praying for them that they will be able to discern what is best. All these things that are going on in this Roman culture, in this Greek culture. This was a Roman colony, but most of them spoke Greek because there's all these Greek and Roman ideas with lots of gods. And now you've got these Christians who are saying, no, there's one God. And Jesus Christ is a Savior, and that's who we worship, not all these other things. And that was a tension in that culture. So he's saying, I hope you're able to discern what is best from all these things. Now think about that today. We need that, don't we? We need that depth of knowledge to discern all these things that are going on in our culture that we're hearing. And they, as a community, he says, may they be pure in perspective and motives. As a community, he says, I want you to be pure. I'm praying that you will be pure well, what does that mean? Does that mean perfect? No, he doesn't mean perfect because he knows they're not perfect any more than he is perfect. But I believe this purity is this perspective of I'm not going to stumble because of someone else. Because in this Christian community that I live in, I trust these people that we worship the same God who loves us and died for us and gives us a new life in Christ. And they're not going to cause me to stumble. So there's a purity of the relationship there. Not perfect, but this purity. I'm not going to stumble because of someone else in my community. And then he says, blameless. Not that I'm perfect, but in this Christian community, I'm not going to do something that's going to cause you to stumble. I'm not going to preach about all this stuff and then go out and do all this stuff that I just said you shouldn't do. No, there's this purity. There is this um, blamelessness that I'm not going to be a stumbling block for someone else. I'm not going to call somebody. So you have this godly big picture for the day of Christ. And ultimately, he's pointing to this. Ultimately, Christ is going to return. And then he says that they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, I'll be honest. When you hear the fruit of righteousness, that kind of sounds kind of uh, Christian-easy, doesn't it? Fruit of righteousness. You know, it sounds kind of something that maybe we don't really say in our, in our, our talk. But it's not this fakey spiritual talk that ignores reality, but it, rather it recognizes the power of Jesus Christ in his life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection. All of that brings us to who Christ really is, standing before him with confidence. And we have this fruit that we produce. We have this access to this nourishment. I don't know how many of you, I love bananas. You know, like bananas? I like fruit. It gives us nourishment. And when you think about those fruit that gives us nourishment, this is what God, he's saying, you know, you need to understand the power of Jesus. You need to have that fruit, that nourishment from God that helps you, uh, that sustains you. And it gives you this right standing before God with confidence in who I am in Christ. Otherwise, we can have the opposite of righteousness, which is this shame that says, I'm not right. Something's wrong with me. And the world tries to say this. Now, I heard this perspective this week. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I have this feeling inside of me because I've done something wrong. And I feel that I know that was wrong. I hurt someone else. I hurt myself. I feel this guilt. Then there's another thing called shame. And shame is something that's a little different than that. Shame says, there's something wrong with you. And that Satan wants to make us, and I believe this is why we have a lot of depression in our culture right now, is because we have this shame that comes over a lot of people that there's something wrong with you. No, you made a mistake. Paul did something wrong to the point that he even held the coats of people while they stoned a man to death. He had guilt from that, but he didn't let the shame of that keep him from being who God had called him to. He was a new creation. He was no longer the old Paul, the old Saul. He recognized that through that perspective change that he was a new creation. The old had gone, the new had come. And so we have 
now become righteous in Christ. We are no longer that, live in that shame. And so as you read and hear those things Paul was praying for, for his fellow Jesus followers, what is your perspective of his prayer? That kind of sounds like, and when I thought about it, I even thought about some of you younger people that may be teenagers, and you think of, I want to be a righteous person. Is that something you want to say in front of your friends? Or I'm like, Whoa, what? You going to make a TikTok about that? That'll be really cool, won't it? Uh, no, Dad, that's stupid. It's not stupid. But that's what the world wants you to think, that righteousness is stupid. It's not necessary. But righteousness points us to who we really are. It's who I am. Remember when we sang that? It's who I am. Who I am in Christ is righteous. Not because I really am righteous, but because because of him I am righteous now. I can put that old life behind me and I move to a new life. So I believe in God and Jesus and all that knowledge and all that kind of, all, but all that stuff, it just seems not very exciting and fun or something to pursue in my life. And that's what Satan wants you to believe, that that stuff is stupid. It doesn't matter. You don't need that. You don't need to pursue righteousness and purity and blamelessness. But that's exactly the perspective we need in our culture. It isn't real popular. And we find the true joy that Paul found in spite of, him circum in spite of his circumstances. He goes, yeah, things aren't great right now. I'm not going to you know, sugarcoat it. I'm in prison. But I'm not going to give away that big uh, uh, picture perspective. Because God changed my life and I can't stop talking about it. Never will I stop talking about it. So this morning, I want you to think about what perspective about God and a relationship with Him needs to change in your life today. Because some of you struggle with your relationship with God, and it's usually because of something someone's done. And we get these attitudes like, well, because God let that happen, then therefore He's not a good God. It's a lie from Satan. And a lot of us believe that. This situation that happened to me, if God shouldn't have allowed that to happen, and because he did, he's not good, and I'm mad at him, so I'm not going to worship him. I'm going to do stupid things. I'm going to do irresponsible things, and that'll show him. God doesn't go, oh, okay, all right. No, he goes, man, I don't want to see my child get hurt. I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but I gave you this thing called free will, and people use it in bad ways sometimes, and bad things happen to good people but I still want you to be righteous. But you can't do that on your own. You have to have me. You have to have the work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection to renew you to who you're really supposed to be. So maybe you're struggling with that today, and I pray that God will help you develop that image of who he really is and who you really are. Not the world's perspective, but who God in Scripture tells us that we really are. And we need to have that perspective. So this morning, we're going to offer an invitation. Maybe there's somebody here today that is struggling with that. And maybe you're not ready to come forward. That's okay. But we're going to offer that every week. That if you are ready to make that step, we want to walk you through it. I don't know all the details of your life, but I know God does. And he wants to take you from where you are and take you to where he's always wanted you to be. So we're going to offer that invitation. Our worship team's going to come up, and they're going to lead us in a song. And during that song, if you have a decision you want to make to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and be baptized, I'll be right here to kind of walk you through that. If you want to join this church, we're not a perfect church by any means, but we are committed to the gospel of Christ. We give you that opportunity as well. And then we're also going to, during that time, meditate as we go into a time of communion. Focusing in on what Jesus did. He didn't just say all this stuff in letters through Paul. Jesus actually came in the flesh, dwelt among us, died on the cross, 
to rid us of our guilt and shame so that we could be pure in righteousness in his sight again. And we want to celebrate that through communion because Jesus asked us to do that. And the early church practiced that, and so we're going to do that. So hopefully you got one of those packs when you came in. But as the worship team leads us in this song, let's focus in on what Jesus did for us. And if you do have a decision, I'll be right here on these steps to try to walk in.